Pod here. Today I'm joined by Stuart Emsley. Stuart is the Chief Executive Officer of Open Universities Australia, one of the most unique and successful education organizations in the country and indeed around the world for what it does. It is effectively a marketplace between university and students and currently has over 20 universities offering a range of products and courses for students to choose from. But the organization does a whole lot more than that. In this conversation, we talk about purpose-driven organizations and the difference between not-for-profit and not-for-loss and why margin always helps the mission of an organization. We talk about his transition from CFO to CEO and helping the organization move from five years of loss to now 14 consecutive quarters of student growth and marketplace growth. We talk about agile and all things agile. The organization, once it decided on where it wanted to be and how it wanted to be in its market, embraced a fully ongoing transformation through agile structures of tribes, teams, and trades, self-determining teams, quality reviews, and quality results and resources allocations. This is a really interesting conversation for anyone whose organization is looking and facing into ambiguity and wants to know how it might set itself up to be most agile in the face of that. We talk about his analogy of moving from managing some professional golfers to managing a soccer team and what that meant for him. In a very open piece of our conversation, Stuart talks about his daily practice of mindfulness and what that has meant for him in terms of managing his own reactivities and the benefit it has given him as a leader since then. We also discuss how he has changed his way of giving feedback and by embracing curiosity It has moved him from a place of judgment to one of truly wanting to understand where the person is coming from. And strategically, it gives him a place to pivot from if needed. This is a great conversation for someone who's truly leading an organization at scale, that's growing, that's digital, that's agile, and is having a large society impact. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning... We shall never surrender. It's about trust over control. We empower the teams. The teams are autonomous. You know, we believe in the community of employees over a hierarchy. The senior leadership and senior leaders across the organisations have very much shifted their mindsets to becoming sort of servant leaders, uh, ones that are focused on empowering and enabling our teams and our trades to ultimately do their best work and, and to be their best self on any given day. Welcome to The Leadership Diet. I interview leaders and experts about ways to optimize leadership. What are useful habits and thinking patterns? What are the secrets to high-performing teams? And how do they continue to nurture their effectiveness day after day? In other words, what is their leadership diet? Stuart, welcome to Leadership Diet. Great to see you. Thanks for having me, Pod. I'm very excited. I was thinking earlier on today, the last time you and I were in a conversation remotely like this was in the Mornington Peninsula on the Victorian coast. And I remember two aspects of that conversation. You shared with a group that we were part of your hopes and ideas for the future of the education sector. So I'm keen to do a, a deep dive and see how clearly those hopes have been realized over the last couple of years. But the other thing you, you, uh, you shared, which I want to start with, was a place called Atona in the western suburbs of Melbourne. And I thought you said Daytona as in the Chris Ria song. So I was getting very confused. <laughs> no, no. Altona's out west. Yeah, I, I, I grew up in Altona. It's uh, in the west of Melbourne. It's a, uh, a little enclave with a beach. Back in the, uh, in the 70s and 80s, it was a very 
very different place, I think, to what it is today. It was a bit uh, a bit rougher around the edges. It's been very gentrified, I think, since then. But I grew up on the streets of, of Altona. It was one of those places where you could probably get into as much trouble uh, as you liked. And uh, I was the kind of kid that was probably pretty curious and pretty open to different sorts of experiences, particularly those that had an edge of adrenaline to them. And <laughs> probably fair to say I got myself into my fair share of trouble. And that has never stopped since, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I kind of consider it a good learning ground in, in many respects. There are all sorts of characters. I was uh, the youngest of six in my family, so my parents were quite a bit older and probably very generationally different to uh, everyone that was around me. So, you know, when I would go around to friends' homes, it was all about, you know, Holden versus Ford or it was Countdown or Hey, Hey, It's Saturday, you know, a lot of commercial TV. You know, they'd come around to my place and, and it was only ABC or SBS and, right. you know, my parents might be watching opera on the telly. And, uh, and of course, you know, they were a lot older. So it was just, you know, markedly different sort of experiences that I would shift uh, in and out of. So that gave you a, a classic education as well as a modern one at the same time. Well, it's a bit like that. And, and, and I also had, obviously, the older, I had four older sisters and, and an older brother. And they were coming and going. You know, my, uh, my brother was off to uni. My sisters were uh, off to nursing and you know, a couple of them married doctors. And so there was a real cross-section of different types of people coming through the home and, and experiences from the neighbourhood. So, you know, I, I kind of look back on, on that upbringing from the perspective that it's given me, I think, a an ability to kind of move between different sort of social mm-hmm. circles. And I very early on in my life realized that I would kind of show up differently depending on the company and, and the people that I was among. And it's given me a sort of a, an ability to be sort of flexible and adaptive. And, uh, and I think that's probably served me reasonably well throughout my life. I know you to be someone who's curious and, and adaptable. So let, let's, let's come back to those topics later when we talk about open universities and the change you've been leading there over the last couple of years. But education is not your first sector. You, you, you started out in finance and investment banking and went overseas with those experiences. Well, that's right. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, actually, when I was younger. And the sound advice from my mother was to, you know, get your meal ticket and then and then work that out in due course. And I was reasonably okay at, at English and maths and found my way into university and, and did a commerce course and got into sort of professional services with Deloitte, became a chartered accountant there. I, I had aspirations of of being a creative and I went into to film and television for four to five years, kind of found myself on the wrong side of that. I, I was very much, I think, seen as a, as a suit and right. not one of the creative types. And I went through a, a, a couple of projects of making short films and that sort of thing, but, but realised pretty soon that I probably wasn't in the one to 2% of people with the necessary talent that were actually going to make a living out of it. So creative counting doesn't account as being a creative <laughs> yeah. industry now? <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. I, I, I found my creativity in my business endeavours. So I ultimately ended up going back into banking, um, went over to uh, Switzerland, spent four to five years over there. Uh, working in the uh, in the group area of the of the corporate bank, which was a phenomenal experience. Uh, got a lot of travel in. Worked with people from all around the world. Worked with all the different divisions ac- across the bank. So that was an incredible uh, corporate uh, experience. Had my uh, first child over there and, and repatriated back to Australia. I had a startup for a couple of years in digital printing and photography. I ended up selling out of that when we didn't meet a specific revenue target and went back into banking in North America. So I went and worked for Macquarie Bank. It was probably at the end of that 
period, which was probably four, four or five years, that I, I felt as though I wanted to get into a line of work that I could be more personally attached to, mm-hmm. um, something that resonated a bit more with my values, but also had opportunity attached to it. So I, I found my way into, into online learning with Open Universities Australia, and I've been here for about, uh, I'm in my eighth year now. Mm-hmm. I started in a role that was essentially financial advisory. The, the, the company was going through a huge amount of change at the time, and I was sort of brought in to bring some, I guess, some you know financial rigor and sense to the diversified businesses that were, that were going off in different directions. Very early on, I, I got tapped under the shoulder to go and run one of the acquisition businesses, a company called E3 Learning out of Adelaide. That was probably my first real leadership experience. Uh, this was a company that had about 100 employees, had a national sales team, a very innovative company. So we had our own proprietary learning management system. We had our own content library and you know, we had a number of product teams, small marketing teams. So it was you know, very cross-functional, full P&L accountability. And I was commuting back and forth to Adelaide for the better part of a couple of years. I then took on the CFO role of the group company. I did that for a couple of years before the previous CEO moved on. And I've now been, I guess, in this seat for for, um, my fourth year now. Fantastic. Before we jump into you and and the leadership um, transition and indeed the leadership you've been portraying for the last couple of years, for those folks who may not be fully across Open Universities, it's got a very proud history and and a very impactful history, but can you just give us a brief understanding of Open Universities, what it does and how it does it? Absolutely. Yeah. So Open Universities has been around for 28 years. We're owned by seven universities and we exist to empower learners to to access education that is right for them. We believe fundamentally in the power of education to transform people's lives and the lives of their families and their communities. And I uh, was immediately attracted to this mission as an organisation. I see myself as someone who's benefited enormously uh, from being able to access higher education. And I think that the model that we have that allows anybody to take a unit, either undergraduate or postgraduate level, across some of Australia's best universities uh, and give it a go and see whether it's right for them. And if they meet the standard, they can then ultimately enrol into a program, I think is incredibly egalitarian and powerful and something that our country can be really proud of. And I think it's unique, actually, as as far as a model is concerned around the world. So we're an impact-driven organisation. We're a not-for-profit, but we, we like to consider ourselves as a, as a not for loss. We do believe in the notion of, you know, you need to, to, to make a margin to continue the mission. And so, yeah, we've been doing some incredibly good work. We've helped over 450,000 students access education in our 28 years. And we, we currently have uh, 22 universities on the platform and growing. Wow. So just again, explain, why would someone come to open universities to do a university subject and not go directly to university, which also offers it. Yeah. So, you know, the choice of study can be particularly overwhelming. There's a huge proliferation in terms of what is available out there. And we're a company that has organized ourselves around uh, the customer, both the universities and the students. And specifically on the student side, the value that we deliver is ultimately the fact that we are here and available to help you through the process of making this choice in terms of what is best for you, taking into account what we can learn and understand about what your aspirations are, what you're trying to achieve, uh, you know, where your level is that. 
we can help you through the process of application uh, in terms of getting into the universities. We can help you through the funding process. We can also connect you with the implications as far as where the unit or the course might get you uh, from an industry perspective. And we can also connect your potential experience with the uh, previous experiences of students that have gone before you. So, just, you know, making a, a decision to study uh, is a significant financial decision. It can be a significant investment of time. Students are looking to make a confident decision and they want to triangulate information from as many uh, sources as they can to make sure that the decision that they're making is a confident one. And by virtue of the fact that we are a not-for-profit and we're an impartial organisation, we have the students' interests at heart. Students that go direct will, you know, be fed the line of the university that it's a great product and it's probably right for them. But in many cases, it's not necessarily right for them. And so we, we perform a function of working in the students' best interests and, and ensuring that they get the fit that's right for them. So it sounds like it's far more than just a broking service. It's, it's a how do I find the best solution for you as opposed to here's the three options for you to take right now. That's absolutely right. And, and we're developing long-term relationships with our students. You know, as you'll appreciate, ongoing learning is increasingly necessary given that we're in a, a increasingly a knowledge economy and, and you know the nature of work is changing, the future of work is changing. We are establishing long-term relationships with, with our students to help them through that journey throughout the course of their life. Gone are the days, I think, when you come out of school and, and you go to university and get your education and, and you're done. Mm-hmm. The reality is, is you've got to continue to learn to earn these days and, uh, you know, being able to continually target skills and, and capabilities uh, really is your ticket to employment uh, for the future. So, you know, we're, we're there as a partner and somebody that, you know, learners can trust uh, and turn to when they need to. You said this is unique. Is, is this a unique model like anywhere in the world? Like, is it unique to you? Uh, well, certainly our ability to enrol people on a unit by unit basis into undergraduate and postgraduate uh, units at universities uh, and obtain funding for that is unique. There are other companies that operate at the sort of what we call the front end of the spectrum, which is helping students you know, through the, the, the search and enrolment journey. But we see ourselves as being unique from the perspective of our impartiality uh, and some of the utility that we bring to, to the table in terms of the types of courses that we can get you into and the funding that you can access. Let's move into uh, your transition to CEO. As you said, you, you, you took the leadership of, of a, a smaller part of the wider organization initially, then the group CFO and then CEO. And you also said, uh, we're not for profit, but we're not for loss either. Nonetheless, when you came into the CEO role, you came in to face a loss. And, and I, I think I remember you saying that you've had like almost four or five years of losses in a row before you start to turn that around. What did you do to start the conversation on we need to do this differently in order to change the financial returns? Yeah, so probably in 2017 or thereabouts, we went through a strategic review with our board of directors and looked at where our strengths were as a business and where we had comparative advantage. We identified that we had specific assets that were pretty unique to us, like a national brand in online marketing across Australia that was dominant nationally. 
we had the ability to enrol students on a, on a unit by unit basis into undergraduate and postgraduate courses. Uh, and we also had relationships with nine to 10 universities uh, already across the country in, a, in an integrated way. And of course, we also had an alumni of 400,000 plus students um, that we had relationships over the course of our uh, 25 plus years at the time. And so we had the makings of a marketplace and we could see that marketplace models were disrupting uh, industries around the world, but one hadn't yet uh, found its way to Australia yet. And we felt as though we were in a prime position to leverage what we had and be the marketplace for accessing higher education in Australia. And so that's the journey that we've been on for the better part now of uh, three to four years. Uh, We've had uh, 14 quarters of consecutive new student growth. We've doubled the number or more than doubled the number of providers that we have on the platforms. We've now got 22 universities partnering with us and growing. And we've more than tripled the amount of product that we have available for students to, to search through. So the pivot to becoming a marketplace has been very successful and we are are continuing to build out and grow that at different service offerings to our students. And I think the the potential is enormous. You know, we get a a really positive response from our students. We've got a a tracking net promoter score among our students in the high 30s and and, and 40s uh, consistently. Our universities are are increasingly uh, utilising our services. And so, you know, the benefits that we're delivering as marketplace are, uh, are resonating with our customers. So to go back to my opening, uh, the uh, hopes and aspirations you had for the sector a number of years ago have proven to be true and they have, a lot of them have been realised already. Well, yes. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a sector that, that is undergoing some enormous change. I think if you look at the proliferation of learning that is increasingly available, not just coming out from um, traditional educators, but you know, from the private sectors, from corporates, you know, I was, I was just uh, reading the other day that, that Google themselves are putting an enormous amount of effort and funding into, uh, you know, developing, you know, courses as are Amazon. I mean, the list goes on. So I think, you know, targeted skills, uh, targeted capabilities uh, are increasingly the, uh, the employment currency of the future. And so, you know, we, we recognise that all of this choice becomes increasingly burdensome for, for students to wade their way through. And we can see ourselves as playing a key role in uh, bringing some clarity and some efficiency to that process for the benefit of students and also for the benefit of our university partners. A true marketplace in, in that regard. So you talk about the transformation and, and in effect, you've been leading a, you know, an agile type transformation and the organisation has adopted a lot of agile techniques and indeed mindsets. Just talk me through the idea of tribes and teams and that kind of structure that you've set in place. What is it, A, and why did you do it? So we operate in a very uncertain environment. It's hard to be able to make a huge bet with a degree of certainty that you're going to get a return on that in three to five years' time. We've gone through a couple of experiences where we've made big bets as an organisation and they haven't delivered a return. And so, uh, you know, in, in the face of uncertainty, we've 
organised ourselves as a company around delivering value to our customer. And so uh, across our organisation, we've, we've divided the company into tribes that have a specific customer focus. So we have essentially a partner supply tribe and, and we have a, a student tribe and, and we've most recently just set our third tribe up, which is focusing on uh, essentially our employees. And within the tribes, we have teams and the teams uh, is where the, effectively the work gets done. Uh, the teams are, are cross-functional and they're filled with people who bring specific skills and what we call trades to bear within the team. And essentially the ethos of the work within the team is to, is to prove out value uh, for our customer. And so, you know, we work in an agile way. Um, we believe in outcomes as an organization. We, we believe in being agile. We don't believe in, in just doing agile. So outcomes are, are super important to us. Can you tell us the difference between what you just said there, Stuart? Because I think that's a really important comment what you made is we believe in being agile as opposed to just doing agile. Because my experience is a lot of folks run Kanban boards and stand-ups and they think, oh, now we're agile. And yes, they're doing some tactics from the agile world, but nothing ever changes in the organization. Well, that's right. I mean, I think agile at its heart really is a mindset. It's, it's about responding to you know customer needs and outcomes. It's not just about having a wall and running a two-week sprint and being able to kind of step back and say that you've done the things that are, are, are typically regarded as kind of agile practices. But, you know, being truly agile is, is having that customer mindset in mind and, you know, working iteratively in a way that that ultimately you know, tests and learns and, and proves out value as you go and, and, and pivots when you need to. We're trying to you know, make sure that we have a, uh, a mindset in place where it's about trust over control. We empower the teams. The teams are autonomous. They, they, they get to make their own decisions in terms of where to place their, their emphasis and their priorities. You know, we believe in the community of, of our employees over a hierarchy the senior leadership and senior leaders across the organisations have very much shifted their mindsets to becoming sort of servant leaders, uh, ones that are focused on empowering and enabling our teams and our trades to ultimately do their best work and, and to be their best self on, a, on any given day. And so, you know, that, that's been a, uh, an organisational uh, journey and, and cultural journey that we've been on for the better part of two to three years. And it's resonating significantly. You know, we measure our employee net promoter score annually and actually twice annually. And, you know, when we started on this journey three to four years ago, our employee net promoter scores were, they were very low. You know, they were sort of minus 20, minus 25. Wow. You know, most recently measured, we're up into the plus 49 range. Wow, that's a significant shift. Yeah, it's really resonating. I mean, people are a lot more engaged, a lot more in mind. And I think it's resonating in the results as well. Can we talk a bit more about the team leadership? So when you think of self-autonomous teams or self-directed teams, the phrase suggests that the team decides what it will do, how it will do it, when it will do it, etc. And that sounds great. But when you think of a wider organization where you have multiple teams and in your structure, you've got tribes divided in, into teams with trades in beneath that, how does the organization stay abreast of the various teams' initiatives, make sure that they're aligned relatively well, or indeed that they're learning from each other relatively well? So it's a model of cascading alignment. So, you know, annually we go through a process with the board where we set our, our budget and our strategic plan for the next three years. Part of that is that we uh, devise uh, a, a balanced scorecard where we weight priority to specific targets across 
various dimensions of the organisation. So the, the dimensions of the organisation that we prioritise relate to our financials, our students, our universities and our staff. We have metrics that reflect what we're striving to achieve across that balanced scorecard. That scorecard is supported by a process that we run quarterly around our resource allocation. So we regularly meet to look at how we're uh, effectively allocating resources to the activities across the organisation. In many respects, that's a reflection of, of, of what it is you're prioritising, where, you, mm-hmm. where you're putting your money. We augment our balance scorecard with what we call a, a process of uh, company bets. So from time to time, as, a, uh, as an executive team, we will choose to bring specific emphasis to key things that we may want to get done uh, from time to time. And, and this is all visible to the entire organisation. So okay. um, below that layer are our tribes. So we've got our three tribes for students, for our uh, universities, and also for our staff. They go through a similar process. So they will have their own set of key metrics that they will prioritise around. Within those tribes, there are teams. Uh, the teams will also set their own goals and they'll align them to those of the tribe and ultimately then to the overall organisation. So uh, we make all of this work visible. You know, We have a, a system of work a, a across the organisation where we encourage all of our teams and our tribes and our trades to, to visualise and, and prioritise and you know, we encourage ownership, we encourage daily conversations, and ultimately what we're always striving to achieve is, is a level of continuous improvement. You know, we talk about not letting perfect be the enemy of the good uh, quite a bit and, uh, you know, not sort of getting stuck in, in a bind of, of having to be able to, you know, always kind of kick it out of the park. I mean, just small incremental changes compound over time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the benefit of that um, is that when you, know, when you sit back in, in six to 12 to 18 months, it's often remarkable how much ground you've covered. I think it was Warren Buffett who said the uh, incremental change is the eighth wonder of the world, if, if, fully, if fully most of us would understand it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I just want to go back to what you said a few minutes ago. So you, you talked about um, servant leadership and the exec team and the senior leaders embracing that notion. And then you also talked about, you know, the, the kind of conversations the whole organization are having on a regular basis. One of my observations being uh, on the outside of the Open University organization is the quality of conversation has changed dramatically in the last couple of years. And it's more open, it's more transparent, it's more robust, it's more maybe on, on target, maybe. What's been the experience for you leading the exec team in shifting towards a servant leadership orientation? What, what has that asked of you to do? Well, you know, we went through a process as an exec team three years ago to really think about what type of a team we wanted to be. And I sort of initiated that because I, you know, was, was I guess, tuning into some perspectives that weren't necessarily aligning with, with my experience. And fair to say my experience up to that point, you know, having come through banks and, and professional services, among other organisations, was... You know, very much kind of executive teams that revolve or, or operate like a team of golfers where you know, each of the executives is an expert in their field and you know, they carry a significant amount of domain knowledge and, and they have their, their functional functions that they preside over. It's you know, 100% their accountability to deliver for the benefit of the organisation. But this wasn't the, I guess, the vibe that I was kind of tuning into across my leadership team. And you know, a lot of my leadership team had come from digital organisations. So, I, you know, we've brought in skills and capabilities from you know, the likes of uh, REA or, or iSelect or CarSales. And, and, uh, and so they'd been operating 
under different types of organisational models, more akin to, to what you're likely to see in, in, in digital these days where you've got teams and you've got sort of teams operating more like a, a football team or a, or, or, a, or a soccer team. And so we consciously went through the process of, of talking about what type of team we wanted to be and we decided on the latter. We wanted to work much more closely together and support each other. But we also wanted to evolve and, and grow ourselves as leaders. Uh, and so we actually engaged some professional help to put us on that journey. And a large part of that was about understanding ourselves as leaders, understanding our styles, understanding where our strengths and our weaknesses were and, and how sometimes it's just a, a reality that what gets you to a position of leadership as far as the strength is concerned may not be a strength when it comes to actually then being a leader. And you've kind of got to relearn in many respects the nuances of how to play that leadership landscape, oftentimes quite different to, to a managerial landscape. And, and so, you know, part of that is a self journey of, of exploration and discovery, but it's also about, I think, going on that journey as a team and understanding each other's strengths and weaknesses so that we can be supportive and accommodative and, you know, helping each other through this journey. So that's that's uh, the journey that we've been on. It's been yeah, very satisfying and successful, I think. You think about your, your own role there from, as you said, someone who was very comfortable in and very experienced in, you know, the, the golfing metaphor. So now has got to become soccer team manager and, and coach. And <laughs> uh, there's a transition for you in, in that process that you're also asking everyone else to do. What have you had to change or develop or uh, expand in yourself in order to move into that soccer team leadership role? Well, a lot of that's about leading by example. I think that you've got to be the one, particularly if you're in the CEO role, you've got to be the one that is, is seen to be taking the first steps in, in terms of being vulnerable, in terms of being willing to, to walk the walk as, as much as talk the talk. And, uh, and that's been a huge journey for me because I think, you know, prior to this experience of leadership, I've very much had a, a sort of a modus operandi of, of keeping my work and my personal lives very separate. I've been quite a private person, but I think if you want to work in a team that works effectively cross-functionally as a team, um, you've got to give more of yourself and um, you've got to be very vulnerable. You've got to be open to learning. You've got to be a lot more self-aware and be seen to be investing in your growth, be seen to be doing the sorts of things that you're asking others to, to also take the time to do. And so, yeah, my journey it's never comfortable, but often growth is not comfortable, right? Absolutely right. But it is satisfying, I think, once you've covered the ground and, and you look back and, and start to see that the, the results have significantly improved. So, yeah, I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's been a, um, absolutely been a period of, uh, of enormous growth. Can we talk about self-awareness for a moment? I know ahead of this, this recording today, you and I were talking about self-awareness and how do you, as a leader, expand your own self-awareness? Because it sounds really easy to do, but it's not. You mentioned a resource that you've been using for a while that you, you found very helpful with in, in Sam Harris and Waking Up. What, what is that and, and what, what do you use that for? Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of Sam Harris. So I was a, a fan of Sam Harris as an author. And he then came out with a, 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 a meditation, guided meditation app and resource called Waking Up. I subscribe to that. I've been doing that for probably two to three years now. It's just a practice of reflection. As he likes to sort of describe it, it's, it's, it's basically about doing nothing, um, but just observing the notion of doing nothing and, and being able to observe your thoughts as they come and go and, and being very present in the moment. 
And I, I found it to be of enormous benefit because it helps you to be consciously aware of, I guess, the, you know, the scramble of thoughts that, that, that come and go mm-hmm. within your consciousness at any point in time. And it gives you an opportunity to pause and not be reactive to those. And I've found that in my position, um, particularly in, in terms of you know, leading teams and, and often being put on the spot to think and reflect about different issues and be asked to make decisions and that sort of stuff, the ability to not impulsively react is particularly important, not just from the perspective of the quality of decisions that you can make, but you know, one of the things that I've also just realised as being a, a, a senior leader is that everything about your behaviour tends to get picked apart. Yeah. And so you don't really want to be seen to be reacting unnecessarily. I think that, you know, if you're not kind of conscious of the signals that you're giving off, uh, your facial expressions, thinking out loud unnecessarily, you know, all of those can be cues for others to quickly pick up and run with. And I think developing a level of consciousness about those and self-awareness about those helps you to kind of keep those under control in a way that's measured and, and deliberate. And yeah, look, it's a, it's a journey. I'm, I'm certainly not particularly adept. I still feel like I'm a bit of a learner, to be honest, but I do enjoy doing it every day and it gives me space and it gives me pause. And, um, and I, I do find that very useful. What's your practice? Like, do you do that in the morning? Do you do it at nighttime? Do you do it during the day? Did you have a set routine for that? Well, you know, I started out doing it at a uh, scheduled time every day and I have kind of evolved to doing it uh, regularly throughout the day. So I'll tend to sort of do 20 minutes in the morning. But the reality is, is you can do it for five or 10 seconds here and there intermittently throughout the day. You know, if you're getting up and going and getting a drink or if you're you know, finishing up a phone call and before you start your next task, you can pause, you can take a moment, you can really sort of center yourself and then move on with a deliberateness and not a reactivity. And I think that that just buys you a lot of time and a lot of sort of sense of well-being and, and peace. Yep. I, I remember a, another CEO I, I knew years ago who embraced mindfulness and, and indeed um, developed a practice of meditation. And I asked him, you know, what was he getting from it? He said, oh, two seconds. <laughs> yeah. I said, what do you mean by two seconds? He said, the two seconds in between my reaction and my pause before I actually do something, that's what I'm getting every single time, <laughs> which is a huge benefit. That is absolutely true. And I, and I, have, I have absolutely had that experience where I have felt an impulse to react one way and in the moment have been able to let that pass and react in the way that I choose um, rather than by reflex. And, and yeah, it's, it's been incredibly helpful. So that's a very astute sort of perspective, I think. I do like Sam Harris's opinion about meditation. Uh, for those folks who, who are not familiar with him, he's got a PhD in neuroscience and a whole history of, of various meditation backgrounds. From a leadership perspective, he talks about meditation. His purpose is not, or indeed mindfulness, his purpose is not to give you a sense of calm. It does that, but its purpose is to keep you present into the moment so you can stay calm and focus on the moment as opposed to, as you said, the moment choosing you to react, which is uh, a lot, lot of our experiences. You know, for me, what I think the biggest benefit I get out of it is a deeper understanding of the way that I think, is is a deeper understanding of the way that, you know, my emotions um, appear, um, the thought patterns that I have, just being aware of yourself in in any given moment, I think is the biggest benefit that it's delivered. So I would highly recommend it. We hope you're enjoying this episode of The Leadership Diet. 
Feel free to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast player you are listening to this on. Reviews on iTunes and Spotify are greatly appreciated. The other area you talked to me a few days ago about that you've been working hard at and indeed seeing benefit from is taking time to give feedback to your team. And then the quality of feedback that you deliver is more impactful. Are you able to tell us what are you thinking about when you're looking to give feedback to someone on your team or someone in the organization? And why is it more impactful today than it might have been in the past? I realized that I wasn't probably as proficient in in feedback as I needed to be. Again, coming out of that kind of correcting from being familiar with a leadership model around experts rather than those that are sort of learners and and, and curious. And so I, I started to approach feedback more from the perspective of curiosity rather than from the perspective of criticism. And I think the approach that's probably worked for me more effectively is from the point of view of of really just questioning. So feedback that is seeking to understand in some more depth, the way that sort of people are behaving or way that they're responding or what's driving their motivations, Mm. you know, adopting a curiosity to, to what's making people tick or act in certain ways or perform in certain ways has, I think, uncovered a level of genuine interest and and authenticity from the recipient. You know, it's not I'm bringing judgment to the feedback. I'm I'm trying to understand ultimately where they are in in any given um, situation or experience. And and that's that's been really helpful because I think from their perspective, it's not been received negatively. You know, this kind of comes through experience and time. I think what we've been able to develop as a, as a leadership group is a sense of trust amongst ourselves. You know, you sort of start out talking about the team that you want to be, type of team that you want to be, the, the values that you have, how you see those values show up in behaviours. And, and that all sounds good and it reads well on paper and it reads well in your team charter. But until you've gone around the block, I think a couple of times and have the lived experience of putting those things into practice, you haven't actually notched up the runs of trust. And I think once those runs have started to be notched up, you can then sort of build on those and, and, you know, and, and leverage those more effectively in, in terms of learning and growing and understanding and curiosity. Because, you know, I mean, ultimately, I'm a big believer in getting there together as a team, big believer in better outcomes are achieved when we're working effectively and, um, and we're aligned and, helping each other. And um, so buy-in is is super important for me. And so if I'm seeing that there are challenges, either negative or positive, that uh, I'm wanting to understand more or bring attention to more, then, you know, I'll I'll come at it from that point of view. So I think questioning is very powerful in, in the space of feedback. I love what you said about curiosity. It's very, very difficult to be cynical, sarcastic, or judgmental if you start it from a place of curiosity. Yes. It just, just is the antidote to it. And, and if you're curious, then by nature, you're, you're trying to understand someone else's intention as opposed to judge their behavior. You also give them the opportunity to articulate it in their own words. If you show up to something like feedback with the perspective that you're right, then that's a very entrenched position. And I don't know that it's always that helpful. Um, and my experience is that it's not that helpful very, very often. So yeah, so approaching it from understanding and, and curiosity, I think is, is very powerful because it also gives you the ability to, to move with 
the new information as it's presented to you, right? So, you know, you, you want to sort of keep your options open and, and make sure that you're not unnecessarily going off half cock. So it's uh, it's good from a development perspective, but it's just, it's strategically sound to be to be, to be <laughs> yes. able to pivot, <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and and not have to dig yourself out of a hole at the same time. Yes, indeed. How are you managing to scale you and your leadership team as the business scales? Because clearly those numbers you've quoted suggest that the organization is scaling pretty fast. Indeed, uh, as you bring on more providers, more university partners, that'll continue. So how are you managing to scale yourselves? It starts with alignment. You know, we made the effort very early on to be very clear on you know, why we exist as a company, uh, what our values are, what our goals are. We, we made a significant investment in clearly uh, articulating for ourselves, not just at the, at the leadership team, but right across the company. So we did this in a very bottom, bottom up sort of a way to get a broad base of alignment around what we're trying to achieve as an organization. We've been very disciplined in articulating our strategic frame. You know, we know the market that we operate in. We know how we're positioned to drive growth. We know how we deliver value. Uh, we know what our differentiators are. We know how we operate, what our operating model is. And we always have our values to fall back on when we need something to refer to, you know, when we, when we don't necessarily have the answers. So we've been very deliberate in terms of alignment. And we've also been very deliberate in terms of, of how we've approached getting traction with our culture. You know, we, we look at culture very much from the perspective of, you know, it's, it's actually what we do and it's how we do it. Um, you know, values are our guidelines in many respects, but it's, it's how we behave, uh, how we treat each other is where culture uh, really comes to the, to the foreground. And culture is, is ultimately what powers the organisation. But if you're not clear with what you're trying to achieve and where you're trying to go, mm-hmm. you know, then you can go off the rails pretty quickly. So, you know, we first set about getting clarity on alignment and then we started sort of turbocharging our um, culture and, and, and the culture comes back to the conversation we're having before around empowerment, around autonomous teams, focus on delivering customer outcomes. To get an employee net promoter score shift of plus 61 means something's working and something's moving. And, and those numbers from your, your students and your university partners all suggest the same thing. So it sounds like that uh, investment in alignment strategy and culture together is, is a powerful force that's, that's working for you. Yeah, I'm a, look, I'm a huge believer in, in doing what you say you're going to do. I think it, it's, it's one of the best ways you can start to build trust. And so, you know, managing expectations with everybody across the organization, including our stakeholders at the board level and, and even our shareholders is particularly important to me. You know, maintaining that integrity of putting actions to words ultimately builds trust through time. And I think that you know, to my point before, once you go around the block a few times and we deliver on those expectations and we are honest and we're, and we're transparent and we, and we continue with that kind of a, a, a cultural approach, I think you then start to get uh, some more of that compounding benefit that we were talking about earlier. So we're coming out of, of uh, well, hope, hopefully we're coming out of the uh, the pandemic impact and the education sector is often viewed as a, a counter-cyclical type sector and indeed it's gone really well the last couple of years. What's the future for OUA over the next five years? 
Well, the future for AUA is, is really bright, you know. I mean, we operate in a $20 billion domestic market. You know, we're a platform that uh, intermediates about $230 million or, or, or thereabouts. So we still only have a small slice of a, of a very large pie. There's you know, over a million students just studying in post-secondary at any point in time. You know, we see ourselves uh, as being able to improve ultimately the way that students can find and access their next learning opportunity. There's a lot of uh, investment and there's a lot of innovation going into uh, the future of learning, both face-to-face, online and blended. We see ourselves, whilst we've got a, a history of predominantly being in online, you know, we, we can certainly pursue a number of growth planks beyond what our current strategic frame is. I mean, we haven't really looked yet too much beyond the university sector. Uh, there's, there's the whole of post-secondary that we can look at. You know, there's there's on campus, there's international. I think that the um, the prospects for the organisation are enormous. I mean, one of the benefits of our business is that we sit across a very unique data set. So, you know, we, we have visibility of student behaviour, uh, to use marketing speak, you know, way, way up the funnel. So sort of two years out in, in terms of consideration, we're developing relationships with those students very early in their consideration journey. And we maintain that relationship all the way through to uh, completion of study and then on to their next study choice. That is a, an incredibly rich data set and, you know, one that we're continuing to invest in that will ultimately help us improve the way that we match students into courses. And so I think that there's a huge public good uh, that can come out of that. And I think that that we're, you know, squarely positioned to be able to deliver on that. Well, education certainly has been proven time and time and time again to be one of the most powerful forces to lift people out of poverty or ignorance or, or, or whatever sector they're in and give them a lift in society. So clearly you're, you're having a very powerful impact on society and in an Australian context where you and I are both sitting today, education is in the top three export sectors for the country. So uh, a very important sector for, for everybody. So glad to hear how well you're going and that the plans a couple of years ago you you talked about in that place in Victoria has have, have, have been realized and, and manifesting. Before we come to an, an end, Stuart, I'd, I'd love to invite you back in a couple more years to hear the rest of this story as it keeps unfurling. But before then, one of my favorite questions to ask anybody and everybody is, what is your favorite song or your favorite band? Well, I would say that my favorite song is a song uh, by Dave Granny and the Coral Snakes. Mm-hmm. It's called Rock and Roll is Where I Hide. I'm not sure if you know Dave Granny, <laughs> but he's a, uh, he's a rock and roll institution around Dave. Melbourne. He, he actually hails, I think, from uh, Mount Gambier in South Australia, but I think um, Melbourne Rock and Roll has, has adopted him as, as one of his own. It's a great song, Rock and Roll, Where I Hide. I, look, I saw it live uh, at the Prince Patrick Hotel, I think, in the early 90s when the album on which it was released, he was, he was touring off the back of that, and it was just incredible. You know, the lyrics are, are amazing. It's, it's all about his, uh, his various identities, which is something that I can relate to, <laughs> and uh, he's just a true showman and, and local legend. So I have a vague memory of when I first came to Australia almost 25 years ago, seeing him play in Mile End in, in Adelaide. So uh, I do know who you're talking about, and I, I think I even remember that song, but we'll find it and we'll put the link to that in our show notes. And uh, finally, Stuart, if the 30-year-old version of yourself would listen to you, the version of who you are today, what, what, what would you share with them in terms of the benefit of your wisdom? Oh, look, I, I would start the self-awareness journey. I think know thyself is, 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 is pretty tried and true as a, uh, as, a, as a recommendation. I think dating all the way back to Aristotle or somebody like that. 
I think that path of, of self-awareness, understanding the way you think, the way you behave, appreciating yourself, uh, accepting where you are at any given moment and, and being open to, to being able to, to shift and, and grow from that position is the true path to, I think, you know, not just happiness, but, but also self-development and improvement. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate you sharing all the insights today and uh, congratulations to you and the teams, tribes and trades for all the work you've been doing and all the impact you're having. Thanks for joining us, Stuart. It's been an absolute pleasure, Pod. Great to see you again. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Leadership Diet. If you enjoy that conversation, I've recorded my own reflections and a summary of that in the next episode. It's just a few minutes long and it's lined up straight away so you can download it after this. And I've designed it to spark your memory of the conversation. Occasionally, I suggest some reflections to consider. And I also hint at where you might want to go next if this subject particularly interested you. So to round off this conversation, just click on the next episode and enjoy a few minutes reflection time. After that, head over to leadershipdiet.com where you can subscribe to the podcast, to our blogs, retrieve show notes, including whatever resources, songs or band was mentioned by our guest. And finally, the best way you can support this podcast is by submitting a review on Apple, subscribing on whatever platform you listen to and sharing this podcast with your colleagues and friends so they might gain any insights from our guests.